Welcome to the Shalhaba Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. So I'm excited to get into the Word um, this morning. I have to say, I don't get the appeal of that sport. I don't know. Is it just me? I don't get it. It's you're just driving. I don't understand. I know everyone loves it. My husband loves it. I get it's a thing. I just, anyone, anyone else or does everyone else love it? Love it? Ah, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I've started out by getting you all offside straight away. Good work. Yeah, no, I, um, I really have something on my heart to share this morning. And um, yes, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to share it. So um, as I'm sure we're all aware, there's been a lot going on in the political sphere over the past few weeks. We've been addressing that a bit in church. And I'm not planning to speak politically this morning at all. But I really had on my heart um, that God... They put a message on my heart about what it means to love people in 2022 and what it means to be a church that loves people. Now, um, Kim already mentioned earlier this morning what our mission statement as a church is, and I'm just going to read it out again. Um, it says, to glorify God by demonstrating outrageous love for people, our community, and the nations with compassion, service, and, me- and the message of Jesus. And so if this is our mission as a church, if this is what we're on about, if this is what we're here to do, what does it look like to love people well in 2022, in an age where the church is getting labeled very often as being an unloving place? What does this actually look like? And so um, this morning, the two main things I'm going to be speaking about are sin and love and how we respond to sin in the church. And when I speak about sin this morning, I really mean all sin. Greed, pride, gluttony, sexual acts outside of marriage, um, biblical marriage, abuse, lying, disobedience to God, all of it. And there are sins in the Christian community that we can consider to be more notorious, and there are sins that we can tend to be more gracious towards. We don't tend to be so hard on sins like greed or gluttony or things like that or pride. Um, But the important, like, but the truth is before God, all sin is sin in the eyes of God. All sin has a poor impact on our relationships, on our society, and on our soul. All sin is sin before God. And that doesn't mean that the lived consequences of all sin are equally dramatic. Murdering somebody and lying to your friend about where you were last night to spare their feelings are not going to have equally dramatic impacts in the world, but both of them still are damaging to relationship, and before God, they're both sin. Um, in the New Testament, the word for sin means missing the mark. And it's almost like the, um, if you're shooting an arrow and you're trying to hit the bullseye, and whether you miss the bullseye by a little bit or by a lot, you still miss the mark. If you're, I had a t- terribly stressful scenario at the Chicago airport a couple of years ago where we were running to get to the plane and we got there and we got there just on time because like, our plane was so delayed. We finally got there. We got there just on time to the gate, and then they were like, oh, don't worry, this flight's delayed as well for 45 minutes. And so we were like, oh, sweet. So we were like, let's go get food. We hadn't eaten in ages, ran off to get food, came back like 15 minutes later, like we were still going to be there so early, and the gate was empty. And it was like this heart drop moment of, oh my gosh, we're stuck in Chicago. Turns out they had just moved the gate, and it was fine, and we didn't miss our plane. But whether you miss a plane by one minute or by three days, you still miss the plane. Whether you miss the mark by a little bit or a lot, you still miss the mark. And that's God's heart and that's God's attitude towards sin throughout all of Scripture. And now when it comes to our response towards sin as Christians, as the people of God, 
I feel that there are two errors that we can slip into. And I think with some sins, we tend to slip more into the first, and with other sins, we tend to slip more into the second. But both of them, I don't believe, are the way of Jesus. The first one is we accept everything, we support everything, because that is what love is. Love means accepting and supporting and saying that's great without discrimination at all. Just saying everything is great, everything is wonderful, because that's what love is. And on the other side, our response to sin can be that we become hostile, we become judgmental, we become us and them, we can push people away when it comes to issues of sin. Both of those responses are easy. Neither is the way of Jesus. And I want to talk about what the way of Jesus is in response to sin and frame that up in the context of a very um, famous passage, I'm sure we've all heard, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. I think it's going to be up on the screen for you guys. And this is going to describe love in the way of Jesus. So let's read it together. It says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, right in this passage, we see the rebuttal of our two wrong responses we can have to sin. On the one hand, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. But on the other hand, love is patient, Love is kind, love is not arrogant, love is not boastful. And loving that way is a challenge, but it's also the way that we see Jesus loving. I'm going to come back to that more at the end. Here's the thing, though. I actually think most of us want to be loving people. I think for the most of us, our heart and our desire is to be loving. And that's part of what makes a lot of the controversy that's going on in the world so painful right now is because we are being told there's an increasing idea in society that Christian teaching isn't just wrong, it isn't just out of date, or even just offensive, that it's actually harmful. That when Christians teach scriptural views of sexuality, gender, that it's actually leading to mental health issues, it's leading to trauma, it's leading to suicide, that we as Christians and the truth of the Word of God is causing harm in our society. And that is a really difficult thing for us to wrestle with because that's the last thing we want to do. There's a terrible, terrible epidemic of teen suicide in Australia at the moment. And every Christian I know is heartbroken over that. The last thing we want to do is contribute to that. And so in this, in this environment, it can be so difficult to say anything and to have conviction because we so desperately don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't want to get it wrong. We don't want to harm people. We want to love people. And what does that look like? So the question we're left with then is biblical truth, is Christian teaching truly harmful? Now, this question could be answered in many ways. Um, It would be wonderful if we had a lot of academic studies into that kind of thing. There are a handful of them that um, I have, like, read about and know about that look at things like the mental health outcomes for people who live in really affirming cultures around LGBT things as opposed to um, people in churches and that kind of thing. And 
I am convinced by the evidence of what I've seen, but it's not my place. I'm not a statistician. I'm not a scientist. I couldn't speak with authority on those things, so I'm not going to speak on that, even though that is an answer to the question, and it would be wonderful if we had more data on that kind of thing. But what I can speak with authority about is the scriptures and the theology behind this question. Is Christian teaching harmful? Are the ways of God harmful? Is God's intention towards people to harm them? And so I just want to go through a couple of quick verses and passages that direct us in our thinking and our answer to this question. So the first one is the Garden of Eden. So we look at the Garden of Eden. God's original intention for us was Eden. And people always say, why did God create a world with so much sin and so much suffering? And that's not an answer, question that can be easily dismissed. This is not me trying to be dismissive. But one answer to that question is, he didn't. That, this was not what he wanted. God wanted a world that was perfect. And he, we, he, we see God create the Garden of Eden. He places man in a place with beauty, provision, intimacy. And throughout the whole rest of Scripture, God's intention was always to draw us back to Eden, to that place of provision and intimacy and perfection. That was always God's heart. He was heartbroken that what we had in Eden was lost. We see in Genesis 12 that when God calls and commissions Abraham, he says, I will bless you so you can be a blessing to the nations. His heart was that his people would be a blessing to the nations, calling them back to Eden, calling them back to God. Then we see when God gives them the law in all those difficult books of the Bible that are difficult to read, at the very end of Deuteronomy, which is the last like book that has tons of law in it, um, God says this, and I think it's significant for us to hear today, even though we don't follow Jewish law. Um, this is Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 16. It says this. It says, See, I set before you today life and prosperity. I think it should be on the screen. Life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him and to keep His commands, decrees and laws. And then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. And so in the law code, and we know that what we have is far superior to the law. Like we, This is the teaching of the New Testament, that grace and the grace of God is superior to the law. But even in the law, it says this at the very start of this verse, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Even in the original time when God gave the law to the people of Israel, he said to them, I place before you life. Choose to be obedient to me because that is what le leads to life. And I don't believe that for the most part, this was about God in heaven smiting people who disobeyed and um, like blessing people who obeyed. I think for the most part, this was the consequence of living God's way. If you were to say to a child, don't touch that hot pot on the stove and they touch it, it hurts not because you're punishing them, but because that's the consequence of touching a hot pot. And I think there's a very big difference between God's direct action and the consequences of living God's way. And I think that both come into play here because God actually says in this passage, he says, the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. I think there's two things going on here. I think on the one hand, God is saying the consequence of living my way, the consequence of living um, my way is flourishing and I will bless you. And I think that both of those things are at play there. God's heart was for people to flourish, for people to have life and blessing. Goodness, this is making me nervous. Okay. Um, <laughs> Then later on, we see the people, they didn't do a very good job at following the law at all, and they were in exile, and then, this is hundreds of years later. 
And Jeremiah, the prophet, comes to speak to them. And once again, God says to them, Jeremiah 29, 11, we know this passage. He's almost like rebuking them in this passage. He's saying to them, like, I need you to listen to me and to be obedient to me. This isn't just like a comfort, oh, whatever happens is my plan. God's actually coming to rebuke them. He's saying, you need to be obedient to me because, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. He's saying, be obedient because what I am calling you to is good. What I'm calling you to is life. What I'm calling you to leads to blessing. The broader context of this passage in Jeremiah is God actually saying to the people of Israel, seek the prosperity of the nation where I have put you. So they're in exile. They're not living in their own land. It's like if we got taken out of Australia and we're living in another land um, because the other land had come and conquered Australia. And... um, And God's word to the people in that time was, seek the prosperity of the people where I put you. Seek that it will be good for them and that it will be well for them because I have good plans for you. This is God's heart, not just for his people to thrive, but for everyone to thrive through the work of God's people for everyone to go well. And the last verse that I'm going to mention is John 10.10. And this is Jesus speaking. And he says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. When we look at scriptures, if we believe scriptures, and I realize that not all of society can go from the basis of believing scriptures, but but if we're Christians, if we believe in the truth of God, we can. And, And God's word in scripture is that his heart, his intention, his ways are good. And that walking against the ways of God are not good for a culture, for a people that they lead to destruction. And so if we believe that someone is pursuing something that is harmful to them, it is unloving to lie to someone about it. If I knew that the drink somebody was about to drink was poison, and then they said to me, oh, what do you think? Should I drink this drink? And I was like, oh, you do you. Live your truth. Go for it. And then they drank the poison and got sick. That would not have been a loving response from me. Love is to speak truth. Now, this does not, of course, mean that it is our place or appropriate to go around telling everything, everything we think is wrong with them. That is entirely insufferable. And I'm sure that if any of us did that, we would have absolutely no friends and be intolerable to everybody that we're around. So it's not our job to go around just picking out everybody's sin in everybody's life, being like, oh, I'm trying to save you from drinking poison. That is not at all the way of Jesus. That is not how Jesus acted. That is not what he calls us to do. There are some appropriate contexts for that, but I do not think that that is the way to go. And there also are ways of communicating you're drinking poison that are terrible. Is biblical truth harmful? I do not believe so, no. But can Christians be harmful? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely, Christians um, can cause harm. We need to be winsome, thoughtful, loving, careful, spirit-led in our approach to these subjects. I believe overwhelmingly that the impact of Christianity on the world has been good. The value for the individual, the dignity of every human soul, these are ideas brought to the world by the Christian church. But that does not mean that the church's impact on the world has all in all been amazing 
all wonderful. This is capital C church, like the church of all nations in all time. Not, I'm not talking about our specific church. And there are certain, certainly ways in which the church in years past has been unwise and unloving and even incredibly damaging in their approach to people and to issues of sin. And we need to be conscious and considerate of this as Christians. I was listening to a podcast recently and a couple were being interviewed. Um, so they got married and they, they were not, this was not a podcast bashing the church, but the story they told I thought was like, oh my gosh. So they got married, three years into their marriage, discovered that the husband was struggling with a very serious pornography addiction and other things as well. And so they were in church and so they went to meet with their pastor. First thing they did to try to seek counsel on this. And the advice that the pastor gave them in this situation was that she needed to wear him out more and do whatever he wanted whenever, and he needed to memorize more Bible verses. And that was the answer to this situation, which I'm sorry, that is horrendous advice. And I know that's just one random anecdotal story, but this is an example of the ways in which Christian leaders and churches are not always and have not always been wise. And I think we're getting better at this. I think we are, as the church, seeking to grow in wisdom in this. And it's so good. But we cannot ignore the ways in which the church has not always got this right. We need to be sensitive to that and the public perception of that. But that does not now mean that we need to shut up. So again, I'm not advocating that Christians should go around picking out sin in other people's lives willy-nilly. I don't think any of us would appreciate other people doing that to us. But big picture, the idea is that we continue to speak in churches, in schools, and when we have the opportunity to do it appropriately, because we believe that truth and God's way is what leads to flourishing in people and in society. We speak the truth because we love it. Pastor Shane went on a trip this week that he loved. He's an evangelist for it and is telling everybody about it and is showing videos of his four-wheel driving that were convincing to everyone but me because he loved it. He, he, it was something that brought flourishing to him. And so out of love, he's sharing it with us. And that is what love is. We speak truth because we love people. And I think that really captures the heart of the issue. There's a lot of talk in the moment about religious freedom in our nation and the battle for this. And I think it's a really important conversation, but we need to consider what are we motivated by? Are we motivated by stamping our fists and demanding our way and demanding our rights? Not to say rights aren't important. They are, but I don't think they're the heart of the issue. Even that verse that we read at the very start of this passage says that love doesn't necessarily demand its own way. And Rights matter because rights matter for all people. We fight for our rights because our rights are the rights of all people. But also, the, actually the way this was highlighted to me was when the bill came up in Victoria saying that um, it was uh, the conversion therapy bill in Victoria and it said that um, you couldn't even pray with somebody. So if, a youth, so if I lived in Victoria and a youth came to me and said, look, I'm struggling with my sexuality, I'm struggling with my gender, and I was to pray with them and do anything other than say, this is who you are, go to a gender clinic, then I could be liable to be in trouble. And um, like even prayer was off the, off the cards for that. And someone asked me, they said, in that situation, are you worried that you might go to prison or are you worried that a young person doesn't get prayer? What are we worried about? Are we worried that we're losing our rights and we might go to prison? Or are we worried that there's a world out there that does not have truth and biblical counsel and love 
rights matter. Please don't hear me saying rights don't matter. But I don't think they should be the forefront of our heart. They matter because of other people. They matter because of love. And God loves all people. We know that. But sometimes we forget. When I was in YWAM, we were part of this thing called Mega Cities, where we would go to um, Mega Cities, so like enormous millions of people, countries all over the world. And, we, and every team from bunch, like a bunch of bases would go there over the course of the year. It was like a strategic thing to increase impact. So the Mega Cities that I was part of was in Kolkata in India. And um, during the training for that, one of the lecturers was saying that Many people don't like cities. They think of cities as places that are depraved and gross and dirty. Um, and they just think, you know, countries are nice, like the country or suburbs or whatever are nice. And that cities are just like these depraved, dirty, ugly places. And I have to say, I think Charles Dickens bears some responsibility for this in our cultural imagination. I've been reading Oliver Twist for a very long time before I fall asleep because Charles Dickens makes me fall asleep. He's not the most exciting writer in the world. But... Um, he writes, the way he writes about cities, you're like, ooh, and the way he writes about the country, it's like everyone's clean and religious and lovely. Anyway, he was a good writer. I'm not trying to criticize him, but I'm just saying, I think that he and others like him put this idea in our cultural imagination in the West that cities were like this like dirty, depraved place and countries were beautiful and flowers and everything. But this lecturer was saying, like, I actually think God's heart is in a way even more for cities than for other places because that is where more people are. And God's heart is for people. How dare we not love cities? How dare we not care about cities? How dare we leave cities and just not minister to cities because they're whatever. I mean, some people love cities. There's people in the room here who are like, oh, cities. Sydney's nice. Kolkata was a little different to Sydney, I'll say. But their heart was how dare we not care about cities. And I think that I would say, how dare we be dismissive of people who sin? We all sin. How dare we not sincerely care about and pray for and have our hearts broken over people who are far from God, no matter what their bumper stickers are on their car, no matter how they cut their hair or what they post on social media or what causes they advocate for. How dare we see people as an inconvenience or other or too difficult? That is not the heart of God. God loves all people. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. And we see this in the life of Jesus. This is my last point. Like I mentioned above, there are some, like I mentioned earlier, sorry, I wrote this like an essay. Like I mentioned earlier, um, there are some places, there are some sins that are considered more notorious in um, in Christian, in Christian circles than others. And in Jesus' day, the notorious sinners were tax collectors and prostitutes. They were socially and religiously unacceptable. And I don't mean to diminish the harm of what these people did. The tax collectors were sincerely traitors to their people and caused great suffering and great harm. And yet, who did Jesus spend so much time with? Tax collectors and prostitutes and fishermen, and religious leaders, and tradespeople, and wealthy women, and ordinary people, but also the tax collectors and prostitutes. And what's even more incredible is that these people wanted to be with Jesus. He lived his life and conducted himself and loved people in such a way that they wanted to spend time with him. And I'm speaking to myself here too. Do people who are far from God want to be around you? 
because of the way that you're living your life. And what's remarkable about these stories is Jesus' response. He didn't fall into either of the traps we spoke about before. He didn't pretend that truth wasn't truth. He didn't lie to these people. He didn't accept all of their sin and say, that's all fine. But he also didn't treat people as others. He sincerely loved them. He continued to speak truth while he accepted people. And there's an idea that loving people means never saying anything that would offend or challenge them. But that is not what we see in the life of Jesus. If we look at two stories, one is the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus called him. He said, I want to eat with you. I want to share bread in your home. And after that experience, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the notorious sinner, repented. He gave his money back to the poor. He he gave his money to the poor. He gave money back to people he had wronged because Jesus and being near Jesus touched him and changed him. There's also the mysterious passage in John 8 about the woman caught in the act of adultery. And this is one of the passages in the Bible that makes me feel like, wow, they were, not the Bible writers, the people in Jesus' time were really sexist because I'm like, where's the dude? What? You don't commit adultery by yourself. Like, what? <laughs> I don't know. Just, I was like, ah, I can see why people, like, like, why women were not treated quite fairly. So anyway, they drag only the woman, not the man, before Jesus. And they say, Jesus, like, she was caught in the act of adultery. The Torah says that you must stone her to death. Are you going to stone her to death? And Jesus looks at them and he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, every one of these people accusing her leaves. And then Jesus looks at this woman and she says, does, he said, does no one condemn you? And she said, no, not one of them. And he said, well, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And this is God's heart for all of us. He extends acceptance. He extends mercy. But he says, but then go and sin no more. And that's the heart of the issue. All of us are that woman. All of us have had the mercy and the grace of God extended to us and then been told, but go and sin no more. He did not lie. He did not change truth, but he also offered love and acceptance. Now, I do not pretend that anything I have said this morning is the answer to everything. This is not necessarily a practical response, but I think it's an important way we need to posture our hearts when we consider these issues. So I've got three possible applications we could take away from this. Number one, we need to remember our job. We cannot change people or transform people. That is not our job. Our job is to love people and to speak truth. Jesus is the one who transforms all of us, everyone. Number two, we can seek to be wise and winsome with our speech. We need to be wise in our approach to these topics. Jesus was backed into a corner by one story by people questioning him about taxes. And he had people there who would have rioted if he said that they shouldn't pay taxes and people there who would have rioted if they said that you should pay taxes. And he could have spoken bluntly and broken relationship with everyone standing there. Instead, he spoke with wit, he spoke with wisdom, he brought deep truth and he brought conviction. It was perhaps one of the best rhetorical responses of all time. So I do not pretend that all of us are going to be able to do that just on a moment's notice. He was, after all, Jesus, the Lord of God and the best teacher in all of history. But I think there are principles we can take away from the way Jesus responded in that moment. And number three, we can seek to make our church an outrageously loving church. 
As Kim shared before, we've got our hubs launched today and that's something that we've got a team of people who are gonna be here and be welcoming, but that's something for all of us. We all can go the extra mile to make this a welcoming church where anyone who walks in the door feels welcome, feels accepted, feels like this is a place I want to be, no matter what. And in my experience, this has not been a church that it is that is judgmental or harsh or anything like that. I think that we are already wonderful at this. So please, I'm not trying to be critical. This is, this is not my experience of this church at all. But we can continue to be that. We can work hard on our strength and to go even further at being an outrageously loving place. All of it is all of our job to be welcoming and to welcome people in. But this is a place where people can find community and love and acceptance no matter what. So I'm gonna pray to wrap things up this morning. So if you guys could pray with me, that would be great. God, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you that you seek to bring flourishing to all people. And God, I pray that you'll position our hearts to be able to respond to the world and to respond to people the way that you would. Jesus, you were the master at this. You were so good at this. We ask that you would teach us, help us to walk in your ways, help us to become like you, help us to become people who radically love people, who have outrageous love, but who also speak truth winsomely, wisely, Lord God. Teach us this skill. God, we pray that we will be a church who has influence because we have learnt from you how to love people well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.